0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was a key figure in the life and loves, and then the trials and travails, of Oscar Wilde. And yet his name has been more often than not shrouded in mystery, as slippery as the man himself. At Oscar Wilde's trial, his name was initially concealed— written on a piece of paper instead of being spoken in open court. The gentleman on the paper, as he was known, had good reason to want to remain covert, as his life was full of scandalous secrets on multiple continents. We talked to Laura Lee, the author of a new book called Wild Nights and Robber Barons, about the man at the heart of this colorful puzzle, Morris Schwabe, today on The History of Literature okay here we go welcome to the podcast all-male sex parties attended by aristocrats luxury ships with well-dressed and elegant men cheating at cards Engaging in a little blackmail and espionage. And no, I'm not talking about what we have planned for episode 500. That will be a much tamer affair, I believe. Hopefully, anyway, we try to keep a lid on things here at the Jack Wilson Studio. Not too much debauchery. I am Jack Wilson, by the way, your host for today. I was talking about the life of Morris Schwabe and his organized crime syndicate of Gentleman Cheats. Laura Lee, who was here before to tell us about Oscar's ghosts, has gone through police files and business documents and other source material to tell this previously untold story. It's a good story. Let's get right to it. Laura Lee, after this. Okay, joining me now is author Laura Lee, author of more than 20 books, who was here once before to discuss her book, Oscar's Ghost, which told the story of the trials of Oscar Wilde. She returns today for a discussion of her new book, Wild Nights and Robber Barons, the story of Morris Schwabba, which picks up the story with a mysterious figure who appeared briefly in connection with Oscar Wilde's trial and who had a wild, that's W-I-L-D, life of his own. Laura Lee, welcome back to the History of Literature. Well, thanks for having me, back. So I think we've done eight or nine episodes on Oscar Wilde. I've read some big biographies of him. He's certainly one of the most popular and widely discussed figures in the history of literature. And yet I had never heard the name, Morris Schwabe. Now, <laughs> in my defense, and as you know, Schwabe's name was concealed during Oscar Wilde's trial. So why don't we start there? Tell us about the gentleman on the paper and how that fit in with Oscar Wilde's trial.
1: Yeah, there were actually, um, you know, people who know about Oscar Wilde and his trials know about Oscar Wilde and Alfred Taylor, um, who was tried alongside him for uh, making introductions to young men. And there was actually a second person who played the same role in their circle. He would, you know, meet young men who were willing to do certain things for money and bring them to parties with his gentleman friends. And he happened to leave the country and go to Australia just a short time before the trial. So he escaped being drawn into the trials. And because he was absent, In the first trials, they decided to just put his name on a piece of paper. So they would pass these papers and say, do you know this gentleman? And so he was sort of forgotten by history. Some very complete biographies mentioned him a little bit here and there. But because he wasn't there for the trials and because he was concealed in the trials, he was sort of forgotten.
0: Mm. And when did his actual name come to light? Did that happen during his lifetime?
1: His name in connection to the trials actually came to light in Oscar Wilde's third trial. So Mm. Oscar Mm -hmm. Wilde was famously three times tried. He had his libel trial, his criminal trial, and then a retrial. And in the retrial, it was Maurice Schwab's uncle, Frank Lockwood, who was the solicitor general, who was in charge of the prosecution. And he was afraid that if he concealed his nephew's name, it would appear that... They were trying to hide things, and Hmm. so his name came out in the trial. But by then, people weren't paying as much attention.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I want to ask a question about Frank Lockwood later, but let's start with uh, Morris Schwabe and fill him in. Who was he, and how did he come to know Oscar Wilde?
1: He came from a very wealthy family. They were Calico merchants in Manchester, had a huge factory, and so they kind of performed the roles that the landed gentry would perform in a, in a certain area. They were these lauded figures whose weddings were community events and so he was very well off and not very serious though. And he met Oscar Wilde probably through Robert Ross, Robbie Ross's mm. who was later his literary executor. Robbie had gone to school with Fred Benson and he knew Robert Ross in college at Cambridge. And so that's the first that we sort of see those figures, you know, being together. So that's probably how he came into the circle.
0: Hmm. And did he have a connection with Bosie?
1: He did. He probably met Bosie through Robbie Ross, and he was definitely connected to Bosie. The way that Schwabe started to become better known is that some love letters that Bosie had written to him showed up. In an archive in 2011 in Australia, so they were not just friends; they were they were lovers.
0: Mm. At the same time as Bosie's relationship with Oscar Wilde,
1: uh, yes. Oh. Um, and
0: so you know, he was kind of a rival in that sense.
1: I think that they they may have been, although that social circle wasn't very monogamous. Mm. So you know, Oscar would often entertain Bosie with. Young men that Bozy also has a physical relationship with. And Oscar went off to Paris with Schwab and one of Schwab's partners, and they may have had a physical relationship also. So it was not quite as neat and monogamous as we might project on it.
0: Hmm. And so when Schwab went to Australia, was that to uh, absent himself during this trial, or was that just a coincidence?
1: I think that he probably was traveling to escape blackmail. Oh, Um, okay. He he sort of very quickly disappeared to the continent. His family sent him there. And and, uh, along with the letters from Lord Alfred Douglas that they found in Australia are some letters from Schwab's mother sort of alluding to some bad behavior. So family very quickly decided that he needed to take some time abroad.
0: Hmm. So Frank Lockwood, who we mentioned, was the Solicitor General, and it sounds like he was kind of trying to pull the sting a little bit by releasing Schwabe's name and didn't want to be viewed as giving favoritism to his nephew. But did he, in fact, protect his nephew? It, it seems striking that Schwabe himself escaped prosecution during these trials.
1: I think the opposite was actually true. Mm. Um the, the Lockwoods and the Schwabas were actually very close. They would go on vacations together. Lockwood supported George Schwab, Morris's father, for his bid for MP and the girls would play together. But when it came time for the trials, I think that Lockwood really felt that it was very important that they not be seen as showing any favoritism for families or people with titles and, and that sort of thing. And so had Schwab not been his nephew, it's possible that he wouldn't have felt as um, determined to actually have his name shown because they did try to be fair to people who weren't in the country to defend themselves. And I think that that perception really drove his decision to you know make his name public. Hmm. And I think there's some evidence that it might have caused a rift in the family. It's very small evidence, but Lockwood died a couple of years later and none of the Schwabas except for uh, Walter, who he mentored in law, came to his funeral.
0: Mm. Okay, wow. If he only played this role in Oscar Wilde's trial, he'd be of interest to us, but maybe not interesting enough for an entire book. But as you write, the trial is just the beginning of the Morris Schwabe story. So let's take a quick break and then come back and find out more about who this guy was and what exactly he did. Okay, we're back with Laura Lee, author of Wild Nights and Robber Barons. So, Laura, we talked a a little bit about Schwab and how he came into these circles with Oscar Wilde and Bosie and Robbie Ross. But we haven't really talked about what kind of person he was, other than that he came from a wealthy family and it sounds like he was well-educated. Was he a a sort of dandy? Was he a poet himself? Or what, what kind of personality did he have?
1: He wasn't an artist like the people that he was spending time with. He was very charming, and he made friends very easily. And from a very early time, he was uh, very open about doing things that were illegal in his time. So he was really a catalyst for bringing some of those, you know, what they call dangerous elements into the wild circle.
2: Mm.
0: And by doing things illegal, that's... That's these relationships with young men, uh, but also what kinds of things? Drugs or cheating at cards or what, what else?
1: Well, I don't know exactly when his criminality began. You know, I know that he began making introductions between working class young men and upper class men for sex, uh, which was illegal then. So that was a kind of crime. Mm -hmm. But he went on to be involved in just about every crime you could imagine, starting with card-sharping, gambling. He had a West End flat where he would host what they called orgies of a terrible character, which was like all-male sex parties. He set up people for blackmail. He was involved in espionage and dubious business enterprises. So he really, every time that I found out a little bit more about him, there was just another story about another world of crime and another set of dashing and strange criminals. Yeah.
0: Was he doing this for money? I mean, he comes from this wealthy family. Was he estranged from his parents or were his was his father kind of a con man too? Or what what can you trace this back at all to how a person who grew up in privilege like that ended up being kind of this uh, dashing criminal?
1: It's kind of a mystery. I think part of it had to do with his sexuality because, mm. you know, he was always being sent off to these outposts of empire where dubious characters congregated. Right. Um, and I, since I can't trace the exact moment when he went from just crimes like gross indecency and so on to the stealing and card sharping, I can't put my finger exactly on how it started, but I know that he was out there where men were sent away who had lots of ambition and drive and um, where they were far from the regular authorities. Yeah.
0: I wonder if this may have been the sort of thing, we may be just dealing with speculation here, but I wonder if, if he was basically saying... Uh, you're going to treat something that I view as natural and my natural state and who I really am. You're going to treat that as criminal. Okay, fine. I'm a criminal. Uh, you, society has declared it, and so I guess I, you know, the die has been cast.
1: You know what's interesting is he Schwab stayed in touch with Oscar Wilde and Oscar Wilde's friends after the trial, and one of the stories that Oscar Wilde told during his later years was. Um, He would recommend to writers that they write something about someone who was condemned on a very small petty crime, who felt ashamed of it and who then decided he was going to be, you know, the greatest criminal and do something absolutely dangerous and murderous. And Mm -hmm. um, I always wondered if that connected in any way to Schwabe and and his life.
0: Yeah. Okay. so after the trials, he was hosting more of these all-male sex parties and and eventually he wound up in an organized crime syndicate. So what exactly was that? How organized was it and what, what it sounds like it had an international flavor to it?
1: Yeah, I think that for him it started with this small group of friends. I guess you would say these men who went around on ships Card sharpening
0: <laughs> on luxury ships, right? These were luxury, th- these ships, were, yeah. yeah. So, these people... were
1: men who would adopt titles of nobility. So, there was Rudolf Stallman, who was German, who adopted the name Baron von Koenig, yeah. and there was um, a Hungarian named Bella Klim, who adopted the name Count Adalbert de la Reme. And so, they would <laughs> go on these ships and they would be welcomed as you know, treated with deference because they were nobles. And they would rub elbows with other aristocrats and they would find out all they could about them and, you know, play at the at the tables and win every last cent that they thought the person was good for.
0: Yeah. And this we're talking now about the, I guess, the teens and 20s and 30s.
1: Yeah. So beginning in the the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century.
0: Mm. Mm hmm. And they're these are well dressed and elegant men and and they're probably proposing a lot of different business enterprises and so on and and looking to prey upon unsuspecting uh, widows and, and uh young men with money who are not as quite as smart as they think and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, what was unique about them compared to other card sharps was that the card games were really just a way to get some working capital. Mm. Um, but they would send people out on these ships to just get information. And so they would find out everything that they could, usually about some young man who had just come into his fortune. So he's like in his 20s, he's just inherited. He's not very worldly. And they find out what are his weaknesses. Mm. Does he like women with brown hair? Does he be he homosexual? Does he like women of the theater and how much money does he have? And then whoever befriended him and found out this information about him would send it back to the team. So the person never knew that the friend had been involved and they would get them in a position where they owed a whole bunch of money. And then if they had to, they had all these secrets in their back pocket Mm. that they could use to get them to pay. And, they started to branch out from there into just straight up blackmail getting secrets that they could use for espionage and targeting germans because there was a there was a military aspect that they could exploit and there were some members who specialized in seducing young women who were coming into their fortune and getting their money from them yeah so they were
0: You know, they were bad guys. Yeah, right. Now, we today kind of have organized crime. Our paradigm is the mafia with a very strong hierarchy and a a godfather at the top and so on. But how was this one organized? It sounds like they were more coordinated than I would have expected. But did they have a a leader who was giving orders or were they a loose group of people who could kind of freelance but, but help one another out or... Were you able to tell what kind of structure this syndicate had?
1: I think that it was fairly organized. I wasn't sure who the leader was. There were some German sources that suggested that the Schwabas, um, Morris and his brother, were at the center of it. Mm. Um, But I don't know how accurate those are. But just from things that came out in trials of some of the members, there were People who were acted essentially as the treasurers of the organization.
2: Mm-hmm. They,
1: they uncovered all of these documents that were essentially expense reports for travel. <laughs> so it wasn't just a, you know, ad hoc kind of thing. They were, they were quite organized. Yeah.
0: Now, they, you mentioned that there's, they also did some spying. Was that the kind of spying we think of as James Bond and spying for governments and finding secrets like that? Or was this more like spying on wealthy people for blackmail purposes?
1: Well, they did both. Mm. So Morris's brother, Edgar, was a commercial agent in, in Vladivostok, Russia, in the lead up to the Russo-Japanese War. And he definitely sold Russian military secrets to the Japanese in the lead up to that war. I don't know whether he was doing that as a free agent or whether he was doing that on behalf of the British government. One of Morris Schwalbe's closest partners in crime was Baron von Kennig, and he was uh, a spy for the French Duseum Bureau. So Morris was almost definitely involved in espionage. I never could figure out whether he was involved in espionage on behalf of the government, if it was official or semi-official, or Mm. just him taking advantage of secrets that he learned.
0: Right. Knowing that the secrets would be valuable for some reason, whether it's to, to sell them or to use them as leverage or to provide them to a government at some point.
1: Yeah. And I went back and forth on the Schwabas as to whether or not they were in the employ of the British government or another government, or if they were just taking advantage of whatever came their way.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And when we say blackmail, I mean, today, I suppose this would be computer hackers would probably be looking at people's uh, searches and, and trying to capture their email or their private texts or that kind of thing. But this was probably a lot of letters sort of old school blackmail of i've got this letter that you wrote unless you pay me off i'm i'm going to expose it to the newspapers and that kind of thing is that the sort of uh blackmail we're talking about
1: yeah letters and witnesses so mm-hmm. um, one of the big clearing houses for secrets was schwabe's flat where he would entertain gentlemen and it wasn't just the the famous all male orgies there you could meet women, if you so chose. And so he would set up situations where maybe someone would be a guest in his house and he knew that they would behave badly and he'd set up to have another guest there and witness it. And then they could say, hey, this guy saw what happened and get in touch with our solicitor because they had a solicitor who worked with them regularly. And he would contact and say, I can fix your problem for you. Yeah.
0: Now this, your book described several of their schemes it must have been fun for you to sort of uncover a lot of these they're so uh, they're almost like something out of a movie. Is there one that you can share with us that would kind of capture the, the flavor of how daring they were and and just what kind of caper they were trying to pull off and, and did pull off? Well they
1: came to the United States once. And they went, well, they came more than once, but one occasion was when they took a train journey to Mexico. There was a man who was trying to get investors in this railway, and they got themselves invited on this trip as wealthy investors in the railway. And they went through what was dry country in the United States. They hadn't anticipated that. um, (laughs) And so they, they had to kind of find a way to find people to behave badly in the middle of dry country on this trip but they were just trying to get enough money so that they could pull off something really big in Mexico They got to Mexico they discovered that baccarat was the big game there yeah. and that they weren't really experts at rigging that but um, they brought an expert <laughs> in and in the meantime as, as investors they were meeting with the President of Mexico which may have been you know the main actual main focus of their of their trip. Right. Yeah. So they, so they, you know, they managed to swindle a large sum of money uh, out of a gentleman there. And at the same time, they had some sort of dealing that involved the president of Mexico.
0: Yeah. Did they have any muscle in this, in this uh, syndicate? I mean, were they prepared to, did they carry weapons or... Uh, it seems like a lot of these, you know, I'm thinking when you watch this in a Western, it's the guy who ends up being chased out of town or something. But if you have an organized crime syndicate, they probably account for that in some way, even if they don't have goons and, and soldiers, so to speak. But uh, what, what did they do when things started to get rough?
1: There was a case of a member of their organization who was found in a box in the hotel room. Mm. Um, He had, he probably didn't die of natural causes since he was inside the suitcase and had uh, (laughs) poison shoved up his nose. Um, (laughs) And uh, they, it it was a very strange case because at first they thought that it had something to do with Russians and politics. And then the newspaper started to report that it was a member of um, Schwab's organization. And then they stopped talking about it. Mm. But the wife of Bella Klim, Count Adalbert de la Rene, she was interviewed a short time after the murders. And this person who interviewed her didn't know about the murders. And he thought that she was insane because she kept just being so jumpy. And she said that she wasn't sleeping. And she was having nightmares about this man, Goebel and about seeing his dead face and about police coming to get her. So uh, mm. Klim probably was behind that murder in some way. Yeah.
0: Okay, would it spoil things for the listeners if you tell us how things ended for Schwabba? Feel free to punt on that if you'd rather keep that as in suspense for readers of your book.
1: It's probably not a spoiler to say he died in the war um, in 1915. Mm. His sister was married to a man who was part of the Booth steamship line. And he worked for them. And they were coming across from moving back from the United States to England on the Lusitania when it got fired on and sank. And so his sister, her husband, and all six of their children were killed Mm. in the sinking of the Lusitania. I never could find any letters or anything to say how that made him feel or what inspired him. But it was just after that that he became a soldier. Um, he was made an intelligence officer, which seems like a good job for him
0: <laughs> maybe that might also have been putting the the fox in charge of the hen house. It could be,
1: it could be. <laughs> but he was in he was in charge of interviewing German prisoners when they were captured, and uh, one of them shot him and
2: oh, um, wow. so he
1: was buried under the name he had assumed the name Morris Shaw, so he was buried as Lieutenant Shaw in hmm. France.
0: Wow. Okay. So I'm interested in in how you were able to put this together for a book. It's the first book about Morris Schwabe, isn't it?
1: It is. Yeah. There wasn't much about him at all. You know, I started out just going through Oscar Wilde books and the indexes and seeing what there was about him. And then I ended up, every time I would uncover something from an archive, it would lead to something else, and I would find another name attached to him and another name, so I ended up sort of, you know, on the cop shows where they got the board and the pictures and the yarn, it was sort of like that, I, you know, it was a puzzle that I was trying to unwrap, and they operated on every country, so I had a lot of documents in different languages and databases from different countries, and you know, I was chasing them down like a detective. yeah.
0: You know we have had so many movies about Oscar Wilde. I would recommend to any aspiring Hollywood screenwriters that maybe Morris Schwaba would be a good uh make a good two hour movie
1: it was definitely it seemed like fiction, but it was all true, and it was just this amazing hidden story of this gang of criminals.
0: Yeah. Were you able to it sounds like there were at least a, a few trials. Did you and you, how easy was it to access the letters or any other documents? What were you able to find for your source material?
1: There there was a period around 1910 between 1910 and 1913 where a lot of the members were brought to trial, so there were they were tried in Germany mostly. There was a book in German that covered the trials, and I used newspaper databases. A big source was when I discovered Hungarian databases. Of course, mm. they were very hard to translate, but that was where, because a lot of these guys were Hungarian, um, mm. a detective who was following them had written a lot of stuff about them. And then there were police files. So I was able to see files from French and German detectives who were watching these guys. And a lot of just trying to figure out the social context, because when you're dealing with someone who may or may not be spying for a particular government, there was just so much history that you had to assimilate to figure out what they might be doing. Yeah.
0: Do you think there are secrets somewhere in the in the British archives of uh, intelligence operations that might shed additional light on this, if you could access it?
1: I think they're definitely filed. One of Schwab's uh, partners was Gerald Hamilton, who went on to be memorialized as Mr. Norris in Christopher Isherwood's mm. Mr. Norris Changes Trains, mm-hmm. a sort of wicked figure. Uh, most of his criminal activity sort of took place starting in the years before Morris died and then you know, going on into the thirties and beyond, but he has a file that I was able to learn from internal references and in other people's files has got to be 10 or more volumes that MI five has on Hamilton. And I'm sure there'd be stuff on Schwab in there. Mm, um, yeah. And from internal references, I also know that the regular solicitor was part of that. So he has a file. So uh, those haven't been released yet. Uh, but I think they'd be very revealing someday when they are. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's let me pivot back to Oscar Wilde here. Was there any evidence you found that, that Schwabe ever tried to enlist Wilde in his criminality?
1: One thing that I did consider was whether Schwabe had targeted Wilde. hmm. And actually, more accurately, whether he had targeted Lord Alfred Douglas, because mm-hmm. um, being an aristocrat, Douglas would actually have been a much more important blackmail target than a poet, even if he was famous. And I was never clear on that. Lord Alfred Douglas certainly didn't think that he had been duped by Schwab, and he went on to remain friends with him for his entire life. Yeah. So pro- probably he didn't. Um probably he didn't target them on the other hand he did bring these young men into their lives who were you know involved in blackmail and so on and there is some suggestion that he might have wanted to help some of his friends from that environment to have some rich target to ply their trade yeah
0: well, maybe I'm I'm letting my uh, Hollywood screenwriter side run away <laughs> with my imagination here, but I'm just thinking if, if someone needs a better hook than just Boris Schwab alone, I could imagine uh, uh, Oscar Wilde on his trip to America being there to try to uh, do some intelligence work himself or to be uh, maybe in a kind of dalliance with this organized crime syndicate. It would be a very... Uh, Interesting role for Oscar Wilde to be playing.
1: Well, there are a lot of people in Wilde's larger circle who were either known or suspected of working for different governments in that period. So, Mm. you know, yeah, always possible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And of course, then we can say that the trials of Oscar Wilde had a motive where they suddenly needed to get him out of the way or uh, that it was a, a shadowy conspiracy at the heart of everything.
1: Well, there was a lot of talk about that back you know, in the day. The friends of Oscar Wilde would point to the fact that Schwabe was the nephew of the Solicitor General and mm. insinuate that there was something political that had happened and that they had set him up. But really, when you think about it, if you were going to set Oscar Wilde up, there are a lot easier ways to go about it than waiting for him to sue Queensbury for libel and have it backfire on him. <laughs> right.
0: Right, oh, that's uh, three-dimensional chess we're talking there. Uh, okay, so I'm kind of wondering whether. Well, first of all, I I want to know if Oscar Wilde seems like he was surrounded by people who were helpers and people who were not so helpful, and I'm wondering if if Schwabba is in either of those categories in your mind. Did he? Mistreat him in some way. Can we blame him for anything, or is were these all choices Oscar made, and and Schwabba didn't really have responsibility for it?
1: I think that Schwabba was really instrumental in introducing that element that Wilde found so intriguing and dangerous into his life. But I don't think that anyone dragged him kicking and screaming in that direction.
2: Hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. that
1: he. He was open to that kind of experience, and I think it, he found it really inspiring. Actually, to have a different sort of semi-criminal aspect to his life And if it yeah. hadn't been Schwaba, I don't know if it would have been someone else.
0: And Schwaba didn't double cross him or cheat him out of money or anything like that, as far as we know.
1: Not, not to my knowledge. Uh, you know, like I said, I did entertain the notion that Schwabo. In, ingratiated himself with that circle for blackmail purposes, but I don't see any hard evidence that that was his that was his goal. But again, I I never could quite figure out when he started doing that kind of thing, so it's possible.
0: Do you think Schwabba gives us any insight now that we know more about Schwabba thanks to your book and and because of your research? Do you feel like you have any insight? into Oscar that you didn't have before? Does he seem even more naive or more devoted to his art at the expense of reality or anything like that?
1: One of the things that I found um, interestingly revealed a bit more about Oscar to me was going to that period leading up to his trials and taking him out of the center to get a better idea of what was happening Among those friends and what that world was like, focusing on imagining it as you're one of the other people and this playwright is involved and then suddenly there's this trial and it painted the people who testified about, about him in a different light. And it made it all a bit more messy and a bit more like something that was living and could have gone different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found that aspect interesting. And in a way, it made me feel like I knew a bit more about Wilde's world by taking him out of the center for a moment.
0: Yeah. So everyone had more mixed motives, more secrets, more more pressures on them, more more of an agenda. So the trial was full of a lot of, uh, like you said, it could, could have gone in a lot of different ways if people had conducted themselves differently.
1: Yeah. They're often, you know, kind of a neat story of these blackmailers testifying against Oscar and these machinations and the sense that everything was kind of preordained. And it was just this group of people who are doing something that in normal times was illegal, but would never have been discovered. So it was interesting to think of it in that direction. Instead of sort of wild self-fashioning as feasting with panthers and the danger and You know, descending into this den. You know, it was a, it was a group of friends who were doing something that wasn't approved of, and who were trying to meet in a safer way. Really.
0: Mm. Okay, let's leave things there. The book is called "Wild Nights and Robber Barons: The Story of Morris Schwab."a Laura Lee, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That was Laura Lee. My thanks to her for joining me today. You can find her book, Wild Knights and Robber Barons, the story of Morris Schwabe in bookstores near you, especially if you are an online shopper. I guess that's the most likely way to find most books these days, although I still enjoy popping into a bookstore from time to time. I think it's good for the soul. Speaking of which, it's good for my soul to have you here with me, and I hope you join us. Next time for episode 500 as well. It's not a big party we're planning. I'm throwing it for, I'm throwing the party for myself, which is like, oh, if you had a big event, let's say a a wedding, and let's say it was up to you to plan it and pay for it. And let's say you were not part of a couple, but just there by yourself. And you you weren't having any guests were coming in person, but you were going to record the thing, this this solitary wedding of yours, and then you were going to share it with people you couldn't see and mostly had never met, sharing the audio of it. Let's say that was your party. Your wedding. Jeez. I was trying to make a point about not wanting you to get your hopes up about the party we have planning. I didn't want to overpromise, but I made myself a little sad. Is that really what this podcast is? Is that what I'm doing? <laughs> Throwing a wedding for myself where I stand at the altar alone with no guests. Maybe just a sad trombone player playing some music and a pathetic cake. Under the lights, sagging from neglect. That's podcasting. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully if, I, hopefully if I get things rolling and make a big song and dance number and do my little patter, people will enjoy it and I'll take some reflected enjoyment back from them and the universe will be less cold and empty and more like a warm, friendly hug. We will see. Speaking of seeing, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.